Hi, welcome to another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast. Uh, this is Nick, and this is another one of my solo film reviews. Uh, before we get into the movie Point Blank, 1967 Point Blank, I have a couple announcements. Um, I did a comic book, and I have an Indiegogo page for it, if you're interested in looking for it. Um, uh, Indiegogo Comics, Category Comics, and my comic book is The Green Way. You can definitely find some interesting perks and some cool deals I put up there. And if you're just curious, just check it out. I would greatly appreciate it if you just check it out. Um, the comic book should be coming about late October. Also, late October, I will be hosting a panel discussion at the Crypticon in Minnesota. And that will be at the Hilton, October 27th. I will be there hosting a panel discussion simply titled Podcasts and Independent Films, The Benefits of independent films coming on podcast. Lastly, uh, with in coordination of Crypticon, this podcast is hosting a contest. And simply, if you want to participate in the contest, all you have to do is, on your Twitter account, name your favorite movie, favorite horror movie, and use the hashtag, hashtag Crypticon Filmcast Contest. And then you'll be entered into a raffle. We will announce winners on this podcast prior to Crypticon, probably in October. So if you want to participate, it's strictly on Twitter. Name your favorite horror movie and use the hashtag Crypticon Filmcast Contest. In the early 60s, there was a revision, a revival almost, of the noirs that came out mostly of the late 40s, well, in the early 40s and 30s, and dripped into the 50s. One of the biggest misnomers about the noir is strictly it's a style. It's not really a genre, but it's more of a style of a film. In the late early 60s, there was essentially going back and rediscovering a renaissance, you say, of the noirs. They came out in the movies and mostly the books. One of the earliest neo-noirs was a book called The Hunter by an author named Richard Stark, which we will come to find out was actually a pseudonym for the Donald E. Westlake. Donald E. Westlake was an accomplished writer and won many Edgar Allan Poe for his mystery books. He used the pseudonym Richard Stark for this book called The Hunter. In it, the lead character is named Parker. We don't know if it's first or last name. And he's recruited to do a job. And he gets betrayed. And like simply throughout the story, he's going to find out and kill the people that betray him and simply get back the money he is owed. It is from this book that the movie Point Blank is adapted from. Prior to making this movie, John Borman directed a British comedy called Catch Us If You Can. It was his American debut of making a film that he with Point Blank. John Borman was not interested in doing a simple straight-up crime story. He wanted to experiment with the new fashion senses of cinema happening, which we would simply call the French New Wave. And incorporating into the film was an emergence of a pulpy story with Eric Spirit, well, a little bit of experimental filmmaking in use. There's definitely an emphasis on the pulp genre of romance, fatalism, crime, and explosive violence. 
It was with the violence that made the movie stand out. It was characterized as something that was never seen in cinema before, but definitely catapulted the likes of Brian De Palma, David Lynch, and Tarantino into the genre that they see now. At the time, Point Blank was considered too violent. John Borman set out to find a lead actor, and he found the perfect one. The movie actually works well because of, quite simply, some small little things that work is actually casting. And John Borman found with Lee Marvin as the lead character. In the movie, his name is Walker. In the book, it's Parker. But here, Walker, we don't know if it's first or last name. John Lee Marvin provides the emphasis that we love this character is about. He's unapologetic, abrasive, a high introvert, doesn't use a lot of dialogue, but it's explosive with violence and a temperament to go with. He's intense and he's very brooding and very high octane. It's very hard to keep him tame. Actually, in real life, Lee Marvin was considered that. And Tinseltown, in the, his heyday, he was considered wild, notoriously known for throwing wild parties and to be violent drunk. In 1965, Lee Marvin was arrested for drunk driving after he hit a person on his motorcycle on the MGM lot. Lee Marvin would claim in 1965 was simply they was filming a movie where he had a drink and there were too many shots taking too many takes and retakes that he was continually drinking and that's why he was drunk and this person actually the person on the motorcycle intentionally hit his car so he can get a spot in the movie that didn't ring really resolve very well during the making of point blank john borman and lee marvin went out to celebrate and a famous story that you can find is that john borman refused lee marvin to drive his car home up in malibu and as the story goes that lee marvin actually went out and went on top of the roof of his own car as John Borman drove. And there's even some reports of Lee Marvin actually surfing his own car as John Borman drove it home. And there's a report of police pulling John Borman over in Lee Marvin's car as the police tell him, do you understand that you have Lee Marvin on top of your car? It's with those kind of stories that make Point Blank a pivotal movie. And an interesting one at that. Somebody told me along the lines that there's great stories have great characters. And great characters can carry a bad story. And here I don't necessarily have an interesting story. It's very simple. At the chorus, it's just simply a revenge story. The Hunt Walker's friend, Maul, his name is Maul Reese. But in the book, his name is Maul Resnick. Um, Maul Reese hires him to steal money from a drop that takes place at Alcatraz. And they turn against Walker and shoot him in the jail cell and leave him for dead. It's two years later that he recovers and tries to pursue the people that went after him. In a sense, Walker's not really looking for revenge. He's actually just thinking, I just want what is owed to me, the money for the job. It's a small small amount of money in the book it's actually only about $45,000 but in the movie the emphasis of $93,000 is what Walker considers that he's owed and through all the reckless and abandonment and an abrasive action that Walker takes it's simply because he wants his money back and to many regards I review the character of Walker as the most interesting 
It's one of the most interesting characters ever put to film. Marvin's character seems almost inhuman, ghostly, and some people think that even the story is of his own hallucination after being shot in the beginning of the movie. His one-word moniker is a staple that I find interesting. Sometimes you don't necessarily need a backstory. In fact, his own wife doesn't really know if it's his first or last name. And it's an interesting point of the story is that when he comes to seek the people that turn against him, including his own wife, and then he finds out where she lives, he busts in and pursuits to where Maurice shoots, not knowing if he's there in the bed or not, just keeps shooting, 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 until he realizes he's not there. And after deflating from all the violence, she explains the story to him in a very distant, unnatural, very starch kind of a scene as Lee Marvin looks in a way of a distance and his wife gives an explanation of what she done. To counter the Walker character leaf by, uh, played by Lee Marvin, we have some interesting other actors. John Vernon, who everybody knows as Dean Wormer from Ammon House, makes his film debut in this film, Point Blank. He plays the most weasley, conniving, and untrustworthy character. His motivation simply is his selfishness. When he recruits Walker to do a job for him, he does it out of desperation and pleas. Even Walker insists that even his own interest thinks it's not a good idea. But since he's trustworthy even to um, Maul Reese, it's not a, not a good idea. The other character is Keenan Wynn, who plays somebody that's called Yost, who's assisting uh, Walker as he makes his way up the ladder of trying to claim the $93,000 that is simply owed to him. One of the things that works well with this movie is the ladder. It's simply the steps that Walker goes through. He's uncovering this small operation and looking for a way to get money back, but now he climbs up that that's just a sophistication organization, a corporate criminal organization that runs in San Francisco. San Francisco has been used many times for kind of noirs and psychological thrillers. It was only about nine years prior to Point Blank that Alfred Hitchcock did Vertigo in San Francisco. Maltese Falcon was one of the, considered one of the best film noirs was filmed in San Francisco. And in a couple of years after 1967 Point Blank, the film Bullet would emerge and then catapult the whole crime story. Point Blank provided the avenue in the stream for many of these movies after Bullet and after where this film to crave. And in that sense, we would not even get Martin Scorsese without the point blank. An interesting note is Keon Wynn's father, Ed Wynn, was an accomplished vaudeville comedian and clown performer. In fact, one of the first Twilight Zone episodes features Ed Wynn as a street a salesman selling junk jewelry, but... He's so gifted at a salesman that he continually makes a living at it. As when his, as finally death approaches him, he weasels his way out just by simply being what he is as a good salesman. Rod Sterling said he wrote the episode simply called One for the Angels with Ed Wind in mind. 
Angie Dickinson is another actress. She comes on the scene. It was here that her stock continued to rise. It's one of her first movies that she ever did make. Uh, she would actually go on to uh, make other films. But most notably, she would be remembered as being in the TV show Policewoman. Later on, she would be in the movie Dressed to Kill with Brian De Palma, which is very much kind of like a version of Rear Window. And she won uh, Saturn Award, which is Saturn Awards are given to sci-fi or murder mystery um, films. Uh, Saturn Award for Best Actress for her portrayal in Dress to Kill, but primarily people remember her so for the TV show Police Woman. Other notable care people that made their living on television would be Carol Connor. He plays a guy named Brewster who's kind of a head honcho for the criminal enterprise being portrayed in the movie. Carol Connor, as everybody knows, was Archie Bunker. And here, he plays a very awesome and amazing supporting role. <coughs> and when you get to see him, it's very late in the movie, but he provides such an emphasis punch that you understand how the organization works and how unapologetic and ruthless it becomes when the higher you go up. Another feature I would talk about about the, the movie Point Blank is it how up-to-date it was. In 1967, it, the movie featured a lot of innovative styles and modern tools and technology that was really impressive. Um, there, there's, um, there's a scene where Angie Dickinson's character um, and Lee Marvin's character are found the house that the organization uses and they simply wait there for one of them to show up to pounce on but the house is a modernized it has a surround system speaker intercom and it has a lot of the gadgets that would be mighty impressive at the day it has it built in the kitchen cabinet uh, built on the table in the kitchen cabinet a blender and a lot of electronics and a lot of appliances were even ultra modern and up or something that people have never even seen before. Another emphasis of the movie is the interrogation of the car salesman. Um, Lee Marvin finds out that Maurice is one of his friends and dropped off a delivery man. He is a car salesman. Played by Michael Strong. And in the movie, Lee Marvin takes a test drive of a 1967 Chrysler Imperial. It is here that he beats up the car so ruthlessly and violently while the salesman, played by Michael Strong, does not use a seatbelt during the entire interrogation and ruthlessly beats him up. It is that scene that people question the escalation of violence in the film because of how ruthless they beat the car up. <laughs> and they certainly do. And in fact, it's even it's a convertible. It's a 1967 Chrysler Imperial convertible that they ruthlessly beat up. Another notable is Sharon Ecker. She plays Lee Marvin's wife in the movie. And we get this very surreal, very um, I would say David Lynch kind of a thing of Lee Marvin coming in contact with his wife after the event um, happens and we see that um, she takes her could possibly take her own life he's responsible he's there to witness it um, or he didn't witness it but is played upon of maybe he's doesn't really 
come to terms with it. Maybe there's a, some post-traumatic stress, but it's very edited and crafted a way that we don't know if the, he was a count witness there for her death or he simply um, putting the pieces together to think how it played out. And it's a wonderful array of experimental avant-garde that use of it will make it a much more interesting movie than just a straight-up pulp crime novel, crime story, crime movie. Another noticeable um, interest point of how they made the movie is crossover with the audio. And so there was a lot of instances of exposition, but the exposition doesn't go with the visual. So you have um, Lee Marvin's character's wife talking about what happened. And as she's talking, he's retracing the memory steps of how this happened. There's an instance of him walking down a hallway and the noise of the repetition, the pounding noise. is almost like a metaphor of the character that he's just unapologetic, ruthless, ruthless. you can't stop him, he's coming. And it's a, a very rhythmic stepping on um, a wax tiled floor You can and it echoes and you get this pounding repetition as you get a play over of a variety of montage of cut editing scenes of, of his wife getting ready for the day but you know that he's coming and it's cut really well I would say the most interesting aspect of the movie not just the content of style emergence of two styles of noir and French New Wave is actually a style of audio editing that makes it much more mm, appealing because a lot of these movies from the 60s weren't made like this. And I think it was actually pretty new that people were hesitant to give it a fair review. I mean, it did do successful, but people were, it's a little too artsy for me at times. They, they like the crime story, but a little too artsy and a little too little too violent there's a there's a scene where lee marvin's walker goes into a bar and he assaults two guys and he plays that in his mind over time and time again but then as there's a performance piece taking the music of a live band is playing and they're on rhythmic shouting they're not singing their rhythmic shouting of the music plays also in as the the violence takes place in the background Cinematography was by Philip H. Lathrop. Philip spent most of his adult life making a movie. He very rarely was outside of the studio. His most notable contributions were Touch of Evil and Cincinnati Kid. And here he uses very distinct editing and camera work. I won't say much editing, but very distinct camera work and very different odd angles. It's not straightforward. There's a lot of high camera looking down, and there's a lot of low candle, low camera looking up. There's a uh, emphasis on really the stature of Walker, and most notably when you see him in the when he is in the movie, he eats up the screen, but it's choreographed very well, and I think that the angles would be probably a pronounced thing that you would probably appreciate. Another thing I noticed after rewatching is actually the movie doesn't really start till five minutes in. So the beginning of the movie is actually the explanation 
of where we're starting from. And then the film starts with the credits. We don't really see that a lot of times. In fact, the last time I ever saw a movie start and then the credits roll that late would maybe be like Demolition Man. But it's very interesting that we have the credits in the beginning of the movie five minutes after we see the scene. The other noticeable part of it is the use of Alcatraz in the movie. It was just recently closed and used for tourism. and It was actually only closed for five, only, well, if it closed, Alcatraz closed in 1963. And they made the movie, it came out in 1967, so they made the movie probably around 1966. It was only closed for about three years. And I think it was closed, I don't think they had very much tourism. And I would have to, I don't know, somebody probably know more than I would do. I don't think there was tours starting yet. It was primarily closed, and they shot a lot of the movie on Alcatraz. And it was a very interesting landmark to use for the movie. Because it plays so well as much like Walker's character. Here you have a landmark that's quite simply was a, abandoned and it's where Walker was abandoned. It's a rock. It's unforgiving. It's unapologetic, and it's a. It's something that you have to see every time you look out to, into the San Francisco landscape. Much like Walker is the character that Lee Marvin. It's he's there, and there's no gentle side to him. He's ex, you know. He, it's just a solid mass that you're gonna have to eventually deal with. Another um, footnote I would like to emphasize is that prior to Point Blank was a lot of, you had a lot of spy movies, you had James Bond, you had the Impress File from with Michael Caine, so you had a lot of these slow-moving, slow-burning espionage films, and here with this crime one was a refreshing take, not just a crime story, but a refreshing take on the pulp story, and it had to be explosive. And Borman used surrealism, he used kind of a cubism, kind of a forte, and as well as these pop art, there's a lot of explosive color involved. There's a scene where he smashes all the fragrance and it provides a mixture of color, like almost a watercolor in the tub, that triggers another memory, triggers another emotion. A lot of people who've done the reviews for Point Blank emphasize that this is a movie about memory and how we remember things and how certain things can trigger a memory just like a certain word that when um walker's care walker's wife gives an explanation why she abandoned him it triggers how he got this all started is the recruiting of maul reese at the party this i don't know it's like a reunion party or whatever there's also an emphasis over overlaying audio in the beginning the movie when Walker is shot and left to dead, you have the harmonica playing, and you know prison and harmonica. How he is a, a cliche that's quite used, you know, of a cellmate that plays harmonica in the empty hello walls of the cells, and a harmonica is playing because of super boredom, and it cuts that that harmonica is not just a used as a sound for the jail cell. But it's actually the harmonica is being played at the party, and it cuts into um, the scene and the party. It is the bridge, and audio in this movie is used as bridging two scenes together, and it happens quite a bit. Um, it's like the walking scene of Lee Marvin walking. 
Um, there's a little bit of the French New Wave of Jules and Jim. If you know this of Jules and Jim, it's of two guys who love the same woman and she bounces between them. And this is actually used in the movie Point Blank of Lee Marvin's character um, that would eventually be his wife and Maul Reese. And there's a scene, there's a small scene of them in the car together, and she actually is attached to Lee Marvin's character, but during the car ride, eventually she turns to Maul Reese's. And I think it is kind of a little slight homage to the film Jewels and Jim from France. And that's the other thing I want to emphasize is a lot of the dialogue is seems unnatural, seems stiff. And I think it's important that it be that way because in essence, and people are right, it's a memory. Like the memory of Lee Marvin's character meeting his future wife and how that plays about. And it looks very artsy, like he's around a group of guys and they just stand watch them as the him and his girlfriend introduce each other. And then they go out to the beach and go, uh, which seems to be a casual date or time. So there's a lot of flashbacks involved in this movie, but the flashbacks are crafted so well that you don't know when it's going to come. That's a nice point of it is you don't know if it's going to come or not. Walker's character, I don't think, can be defeated. It's one of those uh, characters that, even though he shot an abandoned, and his miraculous recovery after two years and he's going to pursuit. That is something of a stain that you do this to a person eventually stains you. And Maurice knew about that. He felt that. And when he hears people saying that Walker is coming back, it has his John Vernon's character, Maurice. You can see the queasiness, the cringiness to know that I try to kill Walker and he's coming back. There's a point where even Lee Marvin's character, um, people think he's not really there. When he even goes after the organization and he has the brazing, broad attitude that he doesn't care. I mean, he's, they say the organization that runs the crim, science, criminal circuit lives there and without even a hesitation or with any, exi any anxiety, he goes off to his, launch the attack. There's a sniper involved. His name is James. Uh, there's a sniper. The criminal organization has a sniper. The guy that played the sniper, his name is James Sicking. Um, everybody will know him as Doogie Howser's dad. Yes, another TV star that is in this movie. And you also know that one of the henchmen for the bad guys is Sid Haig, which we all know from... Rob Zombie's um, Houses of Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects that the Sid Haig plays. Captain Spaulding, which is a reference of a character played by Groucho Marx. If you ever get an opportunity, I would recommend watching Point Blank. If you like Scorsese, Brian De Palma, David Lynch, or maybe in fact Tarantino, all have to give their start of the pave the way for the experimental filmmaking as well as the pulp stories to John Borman and Point Blank and based on the book The Hunter. It's where you get a lot of one of the best scenes in the movie is Carol Connors character Brewster after coming in contact with Walker.
doesn't really believe he's just after money. It's one of the best scenes ever in the 60s cinema of Carol Connor. What are you doing? What are you doing, Walker? Why do you go around breaking stuff and beating people up you, for money? You, you can't believe that. What are you really after? And Lee Myers says, I just want my money back. And Carol Connor is just unconvinced. No, no, that can't be it. You got What is it that you want? I just want my money back. In fact, Lee Marvin says it about 14 times in the movie. I just want my money. Point Blank has been remade twice. Uh, 1973 uh, it was called The Outfit, I believe, with Robert Duvall. Uh, Robert Duvall. In the late 90s, um, Mel Gibson tried it as uh, the movie Payback. I can't recommend it. Payback is slightly softer. I always say the, I would say that it's more of a comedic touch to it. And here with Lee Marvin's Walker, the only comedic time that you get a chuckle about is the interrogation of Carol Condor's character to Lee Marvin. Um, but Payback doesn't really have the draw. I think there was much, um, it doesn't have the tone, the theme, and it doesn't have what Foreman wanted was the emergence of, of New Wave, Noir, and the Pulps altogether. If you ever get an opportunity, I recommend Point Blank. You won't be disappointed. And hell, if you don't even like the characters, there's some fantastic cars in the movie. I'm Nick. This is the St. Paul Filmcast, and we'll continue. Save you from what you know